Hi, this is Kevin Maloney from Grace Road Church. Thanks for listening to our sermon from Luke's Gospel. Luke writes to give a detailed account of the teaching, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He compiled this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to impart faith and assuage doubt. So our hope for you as you listen is that you would sense that the picture of Jesus painted by Luke is compelling, that what you hear would give you confidence in Jesus, and that your doubts would be diminished as these truths resonate with your heart. For more messages from this series and others, you can head to our website, www.graceroadchurch.org, for audio, video, and text resources to help you walk more closely with Jesus. Well, good morning, Grace Road Church and everyone else who is tuning into this. We're just so thankful that you've chosen to um, listen and watch this sermon. It's, it's our prayer that um, uh, this will be a blessing to you as we look uh, to the scriptures together today. Um, we're going to continue in our sermon series through Luke's gospel today. We're just going to be picking up where we left off last week, and, and this is towards the end of Luke chapter 12. And, and just up front this morning, to be honest with you, um, the passage today, is it's a bit heavy. It, it's a little bit difficult, and, and it might even be surprising for you to hear these words from the mouth of Jesus, especially if you've never read this portion of scripture before. Um, and so what I want to do today is I want us to just go ahead and read through the whole passage together. Um, then I'll pray for us, and then we'll go back and walk through the passage together, okay? So we're going to pick it up, Luke chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 49 and go through the end of the chapter. So verse 49 through verse 59, okay? So Luke chapter 12, this is what Luke writes for us. These are the words of Jesus, starting in verse 49. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it was already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Again, this is certainly a, a heavy, maybe confusing passage uh, from, again, words from the mouth of Jesus. It's rich with warning, but, but my hope is that you see today from this passage, it's also very rich in encouragement as well. Um, but before we walk through it, let me just pray for our time together, okay? Can we pray? Father, we um, thank you for another opportunity uh, to look to you together by looking to your word. And though your word can be hard to hear at times, perhaps a bit confusing at times, we know that no word of yours uh, was spoken carelessly, no word of yours was spoken needlessly, but every word of yours is true 
Every word of yours is important for us that we might um, have a greater knowledge of ourselves and a greater knowledge of you. And so we want to thank you for that. Uh, So Lord, we pray that you would bless us now as we look closer at a passage that again is rich in meaning and, and profitable for us. So Lord, I pray that you would comfort us Uh, as needed, and Lord, that you would confront us as needed today. Uh, But as always, Lord, it's our prayer that as a result of our time in your word, we would grow um, in greater appreciation for you and for your work through your son, Jesus. Bless us again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and go back to the beginning of our passage. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 29. We'll walk through this together again. Verse 49, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. So Jesus begins really with giving a kind of a surprising reason for his incarnation, this, his reason for coming in flesh to the earth. In fact, if we pulled our church today and I asked you, why do you think Jesus came uh, in the flesh? No doubt, I think we would get many wonderful biblical answers. And you might refer back to maybe some other words of Jesus, some other reasons he gave, right? Maybe you would say, well, Jesus came to give life and life abundant. Jesus said that as well. Or maybe you would say he came to serve and not be served. Or that he gave to give life, his life as a ransom for many. Or that he came to call not the righteous, but sinners. But I'm guessing that none of us would say Jesus came to bring fire on the earth. But that's what Jesus says here. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now, fire in scripture most often is a symbol of God's judgment. And so Jesus is saying that part of the reason he came was to bring judgment. And as if that wasn't hard enough for our eyes to read in the text and hard enough for our ears to hear, Jesus then goes on to say that it's his desire that that fire was already kindled and ready to come. And again, that might be strange to hear, that might be hard to hear, but these are the true words of Jesus. But as we've read through Luke's gospel, honestly, really, this shouldn't be too much of a surprise if we remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus earlier. Look at Luke chapter 3 again, verse 16. It says, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, John the Baptist said, you know, Jesus is coming and when he comes, he's, he's going to bring this good and amazing, generous gift of the Holy Spirit for his people, but he's also bringing judgment with him. And this is inevitable, not just in his work, but because of his person. In fact, the author of Hebrews uh, describes God in this way. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. He writes, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with, refer- with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to draw out and explain to us is that God in his holiness burns as it were in purity and power. 
And this was no less true for God the Son as he came in bodily form and lived in holiness. You see, fire accomplishes one of two different things, doesn't it? Either it consumes or it refines. And there's no escaping it, Jesus says. Regardless of who you are, it will either consume you or it will refine you. In fact, one commentator explains it by saying, fire is the spiritual power exercised by the Lord through his word and spirit to the undoing of those who reject him and to the refining of those who believe in him. So here Jesus, again, the second person of the Godhead, he stepped into this broken and fallen world among a broken and fallen humanity and his holiness never failed to burn. That his life and his work brings with it either judgment or refinement. But look what he says in verse 50, next verse in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Now, what does Jesus mean here when he speaks of his baptism? Is he talking about water baptism, what we call Christian baptism? Well, no, because he's already been baptized. That was several chapters ago. Remember, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and that marked the beginning of his public ministry. So again, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Here, Jesus is not looking back. In fact, Jesus is looking forward. He's looking ahead to what awaits him. And we know what awaits him, don't we? What awaits him is the cross, So the baptism that Jesus is talking about here is a baptism of judgment. And using the word baptism, it's so powerful here because it brings with it this incredible weight. Um, The Greek word we have here for baptism is the Greek word baptizo, which, which means to immerse or to submerge. This is why we, when we baptize, we, we put people under the water fully and bring them back up. And so think what Jesus is saying here when he says, I have a baptism coming up. Jesus, in looking forward to the cross, he's saying, there's coming a day where I will be immersed in God's judgment. I will be submerged. I will be consumed by the wrath of God in his judgment on sin. As R.C. Sproul has said, God the Father was not playing with his son on the cross. I mean, it was real judgment. It was real wrath from the all-holy God poured out on his sinless son for the sins of his people. And so Jesus here in Luke 12, he's living with this emotional anticipation as that moment, that time on the cross draws near and near day by day. It's as if he's saying, I cannot wait to cry out on the cross that day, it is finished. Because that's why he came, right? But what I want to make sure that we grasp, and, and please don't miss this, in these first two verses, is that if we coil or, or we wince at the words of Jesus, that, that he came to cast fire, that he came to bring judgment, we should remember that, that Jesus first would take that judgment on himself on our behalf. You see, verse 49 says that the fire of judgment will be cast on the earth, but verse 50 says that Jesus will bear that judgment for his people. So please don't miss, there's incredible grace in these verses. But let's go on. Look at verse 51. Jesus says, 
Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So here's Jesus. He's saying, do you think that, that me coming and me speaking and, and doing this ministry and all this healing, do you think it's, I'm here to bring peace? If you do, that's the wrong assumption, which is super confusing, isn't it? Like, because there's a ton in the Bible about Jesus in peace, especially if you just think about the Christmas season. I mean, don't we talk about peace a ton when we talk about the, the birth of Christ? A lot of the verses we read around Christmas Eve and Christmas um, have to do uh, with peace and Jesus bringing peace in the world. So just for example, a couple examples, Isaiah in the Old Testament, a, a very common verse we read again at Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah Jesus. Isaiah writes, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Division? No, the Prince of Peace. In other words, Jesus isn't merely trying uh, his best to bring peace to humanity. I mean, he is the Prince of Peace. This is who he is and what he does. And so another verse at Christmas in Luke chapter 2, if you, if you remember this scene when the angels show up to the shepherds there that night, at the night of Jesus' birth to announce his birth to the shepherds, you remember what it says in verse 14, the, the angels break out and pray saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So Jesus' incarnation, his coming to earth is described as this peace-bringing event. And the Bible would teach um, that, that the work of Jesus really has brought peace in many ways. So for example, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, this is the Apostle Paul, and he writes, And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. There, in context, talking about this peace that, that Jesus has brought between Jew and Gentile to bring them together in one body as God's people. And then in Romans chapter 5, Paul would say in verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not unthinkable to read the words of Jesus here in Luke 12 and be confused. I mean, Jesus does bring peace. But here in Luke 12, he says he doesn't bring peace. In fact, he brings division. So which is it? What, what's Jesus getting at here? Well, through the work of Jesus in the gospel and our repentant faith in that work, we really do find peace with God. Paul wasn't wrong when he was writing in Romans chapter five. We have been reconciled back to God. This broken relationship we've had because of our sin has been redeemed and, and fixed. However, though the gospel brings with it peace with God, it also brings with it a loss of peace with people. In fact, reconciliation with God can mean separation from others. You see, the Bible teaches that there is a coming day when God will stand as a judge over the entire world. And at that time, the Bible teaches that God is going to separate those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. In fact, Jesus talks about this in, in Matthew chapter 25, and he likens it to kind of like a shepherd who, who's out in the field 
and, and he sep- uh, separates his sheep from the goats. And, and so at that time, this, this great day in the future, all of humanity will be divided, the Bible teaches. Those who are Christ's and those who are not Christ will be separated for all eternity. There will be an eternal, literal division. However, and I want you to follow me here, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that coming age has been inaugurated or it's begun. And though we await that great day in the future when it will be consummated or fully realized, Today, we live with some of those new ultimate realities now. So for example, the Bible teaches that we are saved and one day we will be saved, right? Or or, or right now, today, we are new creations, but one day we will be made new fully. So we live in this kind of overlap of this, what's often been called this already but not yet reality of God's kingdom. And that includes this division that Jesus is talking about. And we look forward to one day in the future. One day we will be separated physically, but right now, believer and non-believer, we live side by side, but we are divided in many other ways, aren't we? I mean, we're divided in our beliefs, we're divided in our hopes, we're divided in our loyalties, divided in our allegiances. We as Christians calling on Christ as our Lord and King, everyone else calling Christ something less. And we see the effects of this division on a daily basis, don't we? Right, like it shows up in every sphere of life as we try to live out our faith in Christ among those who do not share our faith in Christ, right? So we see this at work as, as we try to approach our work with, with integrity while other people might cheat to get ahead or do things that are less ethical. Or we see this at, at school as we try to live godly lives of purity while others maybe give themselves over to ungodly and fleshly desires, I mean, we see this in, it just in culture at large, don't we? As, as our country and our cities um, grow increasingly post-Christian, rejecting the values and beliefs that, that we as followers of Jesus hold very dear. I mean, we all know this tension very well, don't we? And Jesus points out in the next couple of verses in Luke 12, that this tension extends even to our closest personal relationships, our families. In fact, look again at Luke 12, verse 52, as we continue. He says, For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You see, when someone in a family comes to Christ it affects their relationships with everyone else in the family who are not followers in Christ. I mean, some of you, probably many of you have experienced this. Some of, for some of you, you're living that reality today. You may be the only Christian in your entire family. You may have an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife. You may have unbelieving parents or or unbelieving grown children, and and you know all too well the tension that that brings to your relationship. 
And so as you speak of Christ or, or you openly read your Bible at home or, or you commit to being a part of the local church or you commit to being generous with your time and your resources or as you desire to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, this division um, that Christ has brought to your home becomes more and more evident. There may come ridicule. Um, there may come exclusion. There may even come abandonment. I mean, we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world um, that risk being killed by their own family members because they've put their faith in Christ. Or, or maybe for others, it, it might not even be your profession of faith that brings the division. It, it might be your desire to serve the Lord in full-time ministry that your family disagrees with. They may look at that and see it as a second-class calling that it's a waste of your education or it's a waste of your potential. Uh, by God's grace, this wasn't true in, in my life, but, but I had several missionary friends who experienced this in, in their ministry and their life. They believed that God had called them to move overseas, to plant churches, to share the gospel, and, and their families back home were actually really upset with them. They were upset that they would move so far away. They were upset that they would take the grandkids so far away. I mean, there are a number of ways that faith in Christ brings division rather than peace in our relationship with other people. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. But the inevitable truth here is that in history, the dividing line is what one does with Jesus. Either you're with Jesus or you're against Jesus. I mean, Jesus demands your allegiance or your rejection. There is no um, neutral space here. And by the way, this should just challenge the way we often approach non-believers, I think. I mean, there's ministries and, and Bible teachers and preachers and, and just individual Christians uh, that, that will often do you know, anything they can to ease this demand, right? Like ease the tension over Jesus. And they do it by changing the message of Jesus or, or not sharing the whole message of Jesus because they, they want to ease the demands for repentance or, this, or the demands for his rightful place as king and Lord over each individual life. And so they do this to make the message of Jesus less divisive. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why, you know, we here typically preach through whole books of the Bible and we walk passage by passage as we've done through Luke's gospel. And we do it because, you know, it keeps us committed to seeing all of scripture, hearing all of Jesus's words, being confronted with the entire counsel of God. Uh, because if not, I mean, it would be very tempting to ignore difficult and divisive passages like this one in Luke chapter 12. But Jesus is very clear here that there's no neutrality when it comes to him. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. So as we experience this division in our lives, we shouldn't be surprised, should we? I mean, Jesus said, this is a reality for all who would follow him. But it's important for us as, as we experience this division, we experience this tension, even in our families, perhaps, we need to remember that this is a temporary reality. But for now, we're called to carry our cross and we follow him in the midst of many others who hate that we do that. But there is a day when God's people will live in true peace with God and each other for all eternity. 
But look what he says as we go on. Luke chapter 12, verse 54. He says, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So here Jesus shifts his attention from the disciples, Luke says, to the crowds that had been gathering around him. And he begins to rebuke the crowds that are gathering for not recognizing the work of God in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's happening right in front of their eyes and they don't see it. And he likens it to interpreting weather patterns. Okay. Um, I am from Oklahoma, okay? My wife is from Kansas. We're, we're from that part of the country. And from that part of the country, every spring down there is tornado season, okay? We are from an area of the country with, with this very appealing nickname, Tornado Alley, okay? Um, and I can remember many times growing up having to take shelter be, because a tornado had touched down in the area. Uh, we saw a lot of them. They're very common, um, and, and so everyone in those areas of the country, we're able to kind of see the clouds forming and, and we kind of know what to look for as we look for potential tornadoes. Um, so we're still new here in Rochester. So we're kind of getting used to your weather patterns uh, still. And actually my wife and I, we kind of joke that, that it seems like anything, um, when in, anytime something strange happens uh, with the weather, it seems like I just hear someone say, well, it's just lake effect. I don't know what that means yet. I'm sure it means something uh, we're learning. But, but just like anywhere, Jesus says there in Israel, it, it had its own weather patterns, right? So from where they were, when clouds came from the West, it would be coming from the Mediterranean Sea. And so this often brought rain and, and they knew that. And when winds came from the south, it was coming from the desert. And it usually brought really intense heat to the area. And the people knew that. And so he's saying, listen, if you're able to interpret the weather, I mean, why can't you interpret spiritual things as well? You know the signs. They're right in front of you. You should see them. In fact, Jesus calls them hypocrites here. And the fact that Jesus calls them hypocrites kind of hints at this, this possibility that they did recognize the work of God in Jesus, but they were just simply unwilling to acknowledge it. That in their rebellion, they wanted to ignore it. It's kind of like seeing a tornado touch down and acting like nothing is happening, even though you're just getting slammed with hail and you see debris flying all around you. Jesus, the one who came to bring fire is here and the people are going about with their lives as, as if everything is normal and he's nothing special. But then Jesus seems to shift the scene to something completely, totally unrelated here at the end of chapter 12. Look, look again, verse 57. He says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. So here it seems that Jesus now is just kind of simply giving some instruction about to handle disagreements that are on their way to court. 
He says, listen, if someone's taking you to court, I mean, usually it's, it's better to just settle outside of court before you stand in front of the judge. But Jesus is not primarily speaking here to the way we should handle civil law cases. No, Jesus is using this as an analogy about standing before the great and ultimate judge on judgment day. The idea here being, listen, if you were going to court and your guilt was undeniable, I mean, wouldn't it be better to settle before going to court rather than go to trial when it's too late? I mean, all you'll be left with is your just sentence um, for your debt. Well, in the same way the Bible teaches, we owe an infinite debt because of our sin. That every one of us has transgressed the law of God. All of us, we've all broken the law of God. And now we owe this infinite debt. It's a debt that's undeniable in the face of an all holy judge who knows all things. And should we want to take this to court where we stand in front of the judge, maybe in hopes of defending ourselves, there will be no hope for acquittal. We will receive our just sentence for all we've done and rebellion to God and his law. Which is a terrifying thought, isn't it? I mean, because we know ourselves. We know that we might describe ourselves as good people, but we know we're far from perfect. We know we've all broken God's law in one way or another. Again, this, this is a, a bit terrifying because our sins are undeniable. And so the greatest question that we could ever wrestle with, the greatest question we could ever seek an answer for is, is how can we then stand before this judge? I mean, can anyone be seen as innocent before the judge? Can any of us be de- declared righteous? Again, this is a terrifying dilemma. But Jesus offers hope here. Again, he says, isn't it better to settle with the accuser before going to court? Isn't it better to make things right before it's too late? Meaning there's a possibility to do so. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to death to life. So the question is, how does that work then? Like, how can we be the sinful rebels we are, the the breakers of God's law that we are, and yet still be declared innocent by the judge? I mean, mean, does God just kind of ignore our sin? Does, Does God just turn a blind eye to it? You see, when Jesus offers us this courtroom illustration, he really is helping us understand salvation in its legal sense. Right Again, we've broken God's law and now we're standing before the judge and we're going to give an account. And again, the, the pressing question is, how can we stand before God as righteous rather than unrighteous? Innocent rather than guilty. And the biblical answer is the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. This, this was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. In fact, Martin Luther said of the doctrine of justification that, that this is the article by which the church stands or falls. In fact, it was a needed protest by Luther and the other reformers in the face of a church that, that taught the people that our standing before God, our standing before this judge was both a work of his grace along with a work of our own. But the question is, when will our work ever be righteous enough for the holiness of God? 
will never. Again, it's like going to court and trying to defend yourself, even though there's undeniable evidence that you're guilty. I mean, it's a hopeless cause. Justice will prevail and you will be found guilty. But the gospel is called good news for a reason, right? In fact, one commentator describes justification this way. He says, this is what it is. It's God righteously righteousing the unrighteous. Okay, in other words, God righteously justifying the unrighteousness. And again, this is done not by ignoring our sinfulness. It's it's not done by God just kind of accepting our best offer of righteousness and just saying, well, that'll be good enough, even though it's unrighteous. No, the Bible teaches that God righteouses us. That is, he gives us the righteousness. He makes us the righteousness that we need to be innocent. You see, at the heart of the doctrine of justification is what's called imputation. And it's essential to your understanding of the work of God in the gospel. It's that act by which Jesus takes our sin. He takes our unrighteousness on himself, that our sin was imputed to him, credited to him. And Jesus paying that debt on the cross that we deserved for it. And now, by our repentant faith in that work, God then imputes his righteousness to us. God, again, righteouses us, so to speak. In fact, this is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, the idea is not only is our sin debt canceled, we're actually credited with the righteousness of Jesus. I mean, this is the gospel truth that Paul's rejoicing in and describing in Philippians 3, a very famous passage, uh, starting in verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss. And that everything is is what he's described earlier in chapter 3. All of his religious works, all of his good deeds, all of those things that he would have brought to court as evidence of his goodness and righteousness. He says, no, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now watch this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's saying, I'm laying aside all of my own attempts at righteousness which really have never been more than just unrighteousness and God giving Paul the righteousness of Jesus. And this comes through faith. And that's true, not just of Paul, but for all of us who do the same. In fact, Martin Luther would eventually give the Latin phrase to describe this doctrine. He would call it simul justice et peccator. That's Latin for simultaneously just and sinner. Again, because of God's work through Jesus, we are both undeniably sinful before a holy God, yet we are graciously justified before him as well. So Jesus says in Luke 12, listen, before you go to the great and final court and you stand before God, the judge, 
make things right now. Be justified now. Be made righteous now. Do not delay. And before I wrap up, I don't want you to think that salvation is nothing more than just this legal declaration. As glorious as that is, it is actually much more. The good news only gets better. In fact, the Bible teaches when we repent and we confess faith in Jesus, not only are we justified, not only are we declared righteous, we are also adopted into the family of God. It's as if you were in court, undeniably guilty and hopelessly alone. And based on the work of Jesus, the judge declares you innocent and he takes you home and adopts him into his family. In fact, this is what Paul means in Galatians chapter four, verses four and five. He writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. J.I. Packer, who recently, unfortunately, passed away, he he famously wrote um, in a a classic work, one of my favorite Christian books uh, of all time called Knowing God. And this is what he wrote about this. He said, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. And this is what he says. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So all that to say, if you're new to the Bible, or if you're new to Christianity, and maybe all of this legal talk kind of makes you feel cold, Know that it is vitally important to your understanding of the gospel. There is a legal sense to our salvation, but that is only a portion of what it means to be made right with God. You see, in the gospel, God is your judge who becomes your father. And so I just want to wrap up our time in this passage this morning, just with a few conclusions, just to make sure we see the big picture here. Again, Jesus says, yes, I bring peace with God but Jesus also brings division with others. So here's the deal. We ought to count the cost. And when it seems too difficult, I mean, it's, it's good and right for us to ask, well, which would be worse, division with people or division with God? Certainly, it'd be division with God. And so knowing this, we should expect it. I mean, don't be surprised when others, even those close to you who do not know Christ, are put off by your faith in Christ. I mean, that's just part of following Jesus in this age. So we take up our cross and we follow the way of our Savior, who was who treated with hostility, who was treated with ridicule. And we do so with joy, knowing we are sharing in the sufferings of our Savior. So again, Jesus brings division. But the second thing I would make sure that we remember this morning is that as difficult as it is, to be at odds with others, to have this tense relationship with people outside of Christ, especially with those in our own family. Let's be encouraged. Remember, you do not stand alone because you've been adopted into a new family. It's a family that's embraced the dividing nature of the gospel because we too know that Jesus is worth it. So keep praying for your family. 
Keep living a life that glorifies the Lord. And listen, and continue to hope that one day they too will see the beauty of Christ just as you have. And then the final thing I just want to make sure we, we understand that if you are not already, by your repentance and faith in Christ, you can be justified before God today. So as Jesus says here in Luke 12, listen, why wait and stand before the judge when it's too late? Settle your accounts now while there is still time. Lay down your own attempts at righteousness and in repentance, take hold of the righteousness of Christ offered to you simply through your faith. Let me pray for us and we'll finish this morning. Father, we again, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for every part of it. We thank you for those passages that, that bring comfort, those passages that are a balm for our wounded and weary souls. But we want to thank you as well for passages uh, like the ones we've just looked at in Luke 12 that, that might shake us out of our apathy, that, that are honest about the realities of following you in this age. We want to thank you for passages like these that remind us that you're not only the creator of all things, but you're the judge of all things. And that every one of us has to give an account before you And so, Lord, we thank you that because of your grace, you sent your son to live the perfect, righteous life that we could not live, that he would go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sins with the shedding of his blood. Lord, we thank you that that because of that great and glorious work, um, we can be found in Christ, declared innocent before you, the holy judge. And beyond that, we thank you that you've adopted us into your family. And now we know know, uh, not only... Um, see you as judge, but we see you as our father. And so Lord, we pray for anyone who might be listening to this. Lord, uh, let them heed the warning you've given in this passage. Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you grant them repentance today? But Lord, I also want to pray for um, uh, all those that might walk. um, I I want to pray for all of us to to walk with, with boldness, perseverance, patience, and love Um, even though we are divided from a world that's hostile to you, um, even when they might uh, become hostile to us. Lord, I pray for those this morning who may be the only believer in their families. Lord, strengthen them, please. Can imagine how lonely that is. Lord, I pray, God, that they might feel your presence and your spirit encourage their hearts. And of course, we pray, Lord, that you would bring uh, their family unity in the gospel by their repentance and faith as well. But Father, again, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for all you've done for us through your son, Jesus. Lord, it's our prayer, Lord, that, you're, that you would be glorified in our lives and in our church over the coming days. God, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.